If you thought the war in Syria was coming to an end, think again. This was the scene this morning in Idlib province in the northwest of the country. Turkish forces bombarding Syrian government positions from the ground and from the air. This was retaliation by Turkey after 33 of its soldiers were killed in an airstrike, the largest death toll suffered by the Turkish military in a single attack since the 1990s. This is one of the most alarming moments across the duration of the Syrian conflict. Without urgent action, the risk of even greater escalation grows by the hour. And as always, civilians are paying the gravest price. A UN commission of inquiry has released its latest report on human rights abuses in Syria, giving a damning assessment of what it describes as acts amounting to war crimes. The chairman of the commission added this. The very least the Security Council can do now is to renew and strengthen the cross-border and cross-line aid operations. Pandemics know no borders, nor should humanitarian aid. Welcome to Just Planet, the podcast about laws, life, and global crises. I'm your host, Sokenya Pillay. I'm an international lawyer and human rights activist, prof, photographer, and now podcaster. It's the second week of July, and this is our second episode. And we've got a really important show for you today on the ongoing conflict in Syria and what it means to people who live there, to the region, and to peace and security for our world, particularly during these times of COVID-19. Today's guest is world-renowned journalist Sam Dagger. Sam was nominated by the Washington Post for a Pulitzer Prize, and his most recent book, Assad or We Burned the Country, How One Family's Lust for Power Destroyed Syria, was just listed by The Economist as one of the best nonfiction books of 2019 and has received rave reviews from around the world. There's two important developments that took place, one on June 29th, 2020, and one just the other day on July 7th, 2020. Let me take a moment to fill you in. We're into the 10th year of conflict in Syria. It's been described as war by proxy. Why? Because it's not just the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad fighting rebel groups, but also all factions being supported militarily and politically by foreign influences. The largest numbers of displaced persons in the world, 13 million, are Syrian. And as of today, more than 5 million people are in camps in neighboring countries like Turkey, where they fled for their lives. More than 7 million people are displaced inside Syria. In other words, more than 13 million people or half the pre-war population are now displaced. Due to the conflict, the people are in desperate need for food, clean drinking water, and now, because of coronavirus, for medical supplies and health care. Yet, at this fateful time, when humanitarian assistance is needed more than ever, just the other day on July 7th, Russia and China, the two permanent members of the UN Security Council, vetoed extension of a resolution to provide sorely needed humanitarian aid into Idlib, the northwest province held by rebel forces and still being bombed and attacked by government regime forces. They did this even though a few days earlier, an independent expert said this to the Security Council. So I want to be clear that the current levels of assistance delivered across the border are far from sufficient. The Northwest continues to suffer a major humanitarian crisis. The cross-border operation needs to be scaled up further. 
the failure to extend the cross-border authorization would sever the UN operation currently underway. It would end the UN food deliveries and support to nutrition centers. It would cause suffering and death. Less than 10 days ago, on June 29, 2020, a special independent commission of inquiry commissioned by the UN released its recent findings of events in Idlib, covering the time from November 1st, 2019 to this past June 1st, 2020. The findings are grave. They found more than 52 attacks committed by all parties against civilians and against civilian infrastructure, i.e. hospitals, schools, markets, targeting civilians and bombing them and causing, as happened, millions of people to flee resulting in even greater massive displacement can constitute war crimes. Whenever I've met with people in camps in other parts of the world or with victims of human rights abuses, they've often asked me, why don't people outside care about them? Fortunately, some people do care. Even inside Syria, local NGOs, that's non-governmental organizations, are providing aid and assistance to the extent possible. And journalists have risked their lives and lost lives to report on Syria. Today, our guest is one of these journalists, Sam Dagger. In this episode, Sam talks to us about the conflict in Syria. What led up to it? How did the Assad family seize control and retain it? And he tells us about an important case, something that will lift your spirits, I hope. Two Syrian officials who had allegedly tortured people had fled Syria and were living in disguise as refugees in Germany, only, however, to be identified by actual real Syrian refugees who spotted them and fought tirelessly to bring them to trial in Germany. I spoke to Sam the day after that trial started. Please join us now. Today we bring you writer and journalist Sam Dagger. Sam has reported in the Middle East for more than 15 years. He was the only Western reporter based in Damascus from 2012 to 2014 until state forces captured him and detained him in an underground prison and then expelled him for reporting stories which they considered unfavorable to the regime. Sam's work appears in The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Christian Science Monitor, and Agence France Press. And he has covered the conflicts in Iraq, the Arab Spring uprisings, Libya, and now Lebanon. His most recent book, Assad or We Burn the Country, How One Family's Lust for Power Destroyed Syria, was last week released in paperback, and it has been named by The Economist, The Guardian, Kirkus Reviews, and others as one of the top 10 books of the year in 2019. The Wall Street Journal has previously nominated Sam's work for the Pulitzer Prize, and we are so honored, Sam, that you can join us today. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for the lovely introduction and the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. Sam, Syria has been devastated by nine years of civil war. Millions of people have been displaced, over 400,000 people dead, and its healthcare infrastructure is decimated. You are an expert on Syria. Can you tell us how is the coronavirus going to impact the people? The thing is, the country is divided at the moment. Uh, you've got uh, most of the country, which is under regime control. Uh, I mean, Assad is still there in power, but propped up by his patrons, uh, mainly Russia and Iran. Uh, so they control uh, most of the country, including the capital, Damascus, and uh, major cities like uh, Aleppo and Homs and, and the coastal region. And then you've got uh, a part in the northeast uh, that's controlled by uh, uh, 
a Kurdish militia that's allied uh, to the United States, and you have a small U.S. troop presence there around the oil uh, installations. Uh, then you have uh, another part uh, in the north, uh, an enclave uh, controlled by uh, a local government set up by Turkey. And, and so you could say that area is controlled by Turkey. And then you have a much bigger area northwest of the country that's uh, been in the news uh, on and off, uh, Idlib, uh, Idlib yes. province, mm -hmm. uh, where almost uh, 4 million people live. And that's currently contested, um, you know, between the regime and its, and its backers, Iran and Russia, versus, uh, you know, local factions, uh, mainly, uh, you know, funded and supported by, by Turkey. And also you, you have the presence of, of, of extremist groups that had previously been linked to al-Qaeda or, or had been affiliates of al-Qaeda and are still suspected to be so. And then you, obviously you have the, the, the civilians who are caught in the middle of all of this. And uh, it, it's been a horrible situation. I mean, I take you back to the beginning of the of the year when the regime and its backers uh, unleashed uh, you know this this assault on, on Idlib to try to take it back the mm -hmm. regime was very eager to secure the highway from the capital to Aleppo and from Aleppo to the main coastal city of Latakia and wanted to uh, you know make inroads into uh, into Idlib which had previously been uh, under, uh, under the ceasefire that had been brokered by Iran uh, Russia and Turkey, but then the ceasefire un unraveled and it was a true humanitarian catastrophe. You had hundreds of thousands of people fleeing, you know, as the regime was advancing and many of them ended up at the uh, border with Turkey because Turkey had clo has closed the border, not allowing anybody in. So they were in these, uh, in these tent cities, basically. And then the coronavirus hit. I mean, so far, again, information is very hard to verify. Mm -hmm. um, what we're getting from, at least from the Idlib area, that's, you know, that's still under the control of the opposition, that there are no cases of coronavirus yet. And, but everybody's warning that it could be a, a catastrophe if it spreads in, in these refugee camps where, you know, the situations are, are, are squalid. Uh, there's no room for, for uh, you know, uh, social distancing of any kind. And also the fact that the, uh, the health infrastructure in Idlib has been decimated. The Russians and the Assad regime have deliberately targeted hospitals, you know, over the past few months and, and, and years, you know, hospitals and clinics in Idlib. So that's the situation. I mean, they only have, again, uh, I mean, I saw one of the health officials speak to uh, CBS, I think, last week from Idlib, saying that they only had something like a hundred and... 25 ICUs for the entire sort of Idlib province that's under the control of the opposition. And that's a province with almost 4 million people. On the regime side, uh, you know, again, it's hard to verify anything. They've only spoken about a couple of dozen cases. But even there, the situation is quite dire because you have to remember, you know, when the, um, the uprising uh, started in 2011, the regime deliberately targeted doctors and healthcare workers that were helping people cope with the assault that the regime had had unleashed on many of the opposition communities. So a, a lot of the doctors and, and health workers had fled the country. 
so even there, the health infrastructure is really reeling from almost 10 years of conflict. Of course, that doesn't affect the, you know, Assad himself, his family and the top regime cronies, because there are still private clinics that cater to them. They can still go to Lebanon, neighboring Lebanon, where the health infrastructure is, is much better. And in fact, that's what they had been doing for years. Thank you for giving us this picture of what the situation is in Syria right now. And I I mean, it's it's so hard to hear that hospitals and doctors and healthcare workers are being targeted, which, as we both know, uh, if intentional, is a um, violation of international humanitarian law and a war crime. When is the last time you were in uh, Syria, Sam? August 2014. But I just want to go back and say something really briefly about the um, the coronavirus. I mean, there's a a study that was done um, uh, by the LSE conflict program by two Syrian researchers, and they said if Syria has to, I mean, Syria overall, opposition and uh, and regime has to deal with more than 6,500 cases of coronavirus, the whole health uh, system would unravel. That's according to their study. Yes, thank you for that. And I've also read, um, I think it was somebody from the WHO saying that if the virus breaks out in the camps, or in um, in Damascus and the cities, it, it will be, quote unquote, a bloodbath. One of the premises of this podcast is that uh, global crises don't just occur in a vacuum, that more to the point, they're created and that they're connected. You've already touched on this a little bit with your comments already, but could you elaborate for us on the connections between the danger to the people in the region and this current global crisis of coronavirus, but the other global crisis, which is this decade-long conflict that's going on over there. Should I talk also about the whole region? Uh, the whole region. applies to other countries as well. Absolutely. I'll take you back to 2010 when you had uh, one country after another erupt in protests, people taking the streets to basically reclaimed their lives from these authoritarian regimes that were in place everywhere, from Tunisia to Egypt to Libya to Yemen. Maybe few people can imagine that Yemen actually had uh, beautiful protests starting in, in February 2011, peaceful protests against uh, you know the dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had been in place for decades, propped up by regional powers and also to some extent by the West under the guise of fighting terrorism because they saw him as a partner in the fight against al-Qaeda, and they didn't care so much what he was doing to his people. Even, even in Iraq, people rose up, even though the situation was quite unstable you know, in 2010, 2011, because you remember that's when U.S. troops pulled out, and we were not sure what was going to happen. There was still a, you know, there's a power struggle going on in Baghdad between factions that are backed by Iran and, and other factions that are backed by Saudi Arabia, two regional powers that are fighting for supremacy in the Middle East. So even in Iraq, we saw people rise up all over the region, Egypt, everywhere. In some places, you know, the uh, the, the the regimes uh, collapsed, but that was certainly not the end of it. And and in Syria, the situation was quite, I mean, in places like, like Egypt, for instance, you had Mubarak step down, but that wasn't the end of it because the regimes in these places are, are not just the figures themselves. I mean, the, the leaders who are um, decapitated, if I can use that word, but but these are entrenched regimes of, of local interests, of the military, of the security services, of tribal leaders that have been for decades uh, controlling these countries and their resources. So they refused to go away so easily. And then you had also the regional powers 
who had different stakes in what was going on in these different countries. For instance, Saudi Arabia saw this as saw these uh, uprisings as an ex existential threat to them directly, because what if they, these protests succeed in Egypt and Iraq and, and Syria? Their own people are going to ask for the same thing. Iran also, you know, was in the same position. So, for instance, it was quite uh, hypocritical, the, the positions of these two countries, Iran backing protesters in Bahrain, but opposing them in Syria, and uh, Saudi Arabia uh, helping crush protesters in Bahrain, but support them in Syria. And then you had other countries like Turkey and, and, and Qatar, who saw the Arab Spring as an opportunity to uh, almost like co-opt these uprisings to implement their own agendas and to bring their allies to power, mainly Islamists. So very messy situation. In, in uh, I mean, I'll zoom in on, on Syria for a second, because there you had a, a family that's that's been in power for 50 years, was not going to go away so easily, was ready to use force from day one. I mean, Bashar al-Assad security forces opened fire on the first protest, in uh, the first major protest in the city of Daraa on March 18, 2011, because the thinking was, if we kill people, everyone will be scared and people will just go home and we'll be able to nip this in the bud. Obviously, that wasn't the case. Thousands and thousands of people were killed. Uh, month after month, tortured, you know, sent as bodies back to their families so that that could serve as a warning for these communities. That failed. The, the circle of bloodshed widened. The regional powers that I had mentioned began to get more involved in the conflict, and then it became militarized. And then the, the West looked on, paying, you know, lip service to the idea that Assad has to go, but really doing nothing. And, and, and the excuse is, you know, now this is a a regional and, and eventually international conflict, and there's only a political solution. And this is pretty much what has secured Assad in place, this idea that, you know, if he's able to make this into a huge international crisis, he'll be able to protect his position, protect his family and remain in place. And obviously, Russia played a critical role early on, uh, you know, with political support, and then later on with military support. Uh, Iran, with direct military support. And of course, you know, all the other countries that I mentioned, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar, uh, began to support uh, the opposition, who unfortunately, you know, later on in the conflict became mercenaries for these powers, particularly as we, you know, particularly now, if we look at Idlib and the Turkish role in Idlib. So you've got a situation where it's a major humanitarian uh, catastrophe. Seven million Syrians are now outside their country. That's one third of the population, uh, half of them in Turkey. You've got uh, a country that's destroyed, uh, economy that's destroyed, the situation getting, you know, bleaker uh, by the day, because, you know, for Syrians, it's not only now this threat of a pandemic, but also economically. I mean, the regime is still under sanctions. And Syrians had looked to Lebanon as um, as a lifeline in all of this. You know, many of them have had accounts, uh, bank accounts in Lebanon. Uh, businesses were still able to go to Lebanon to, you know, purchase uh, goods. Lebanon has been in, in throes of, of protests since October of 2019. And now um, 
you know, a major financial crisis. The country's currency has collapsed and devalued. So that obviously affects Syrians. So all these problems are interconnected. For instance, in, in Yemen, which, as I said earlier, you had protests, peaceful protests on the streets. They managed to topple the, the leader, but then obviously he, he wasn't going to go away so easily. And all these other regional powers were involved in the conflict, the UAE, the Saudi Arabia, Iran. And the situation became very dire, you know, a humanitarian crisis. You had almost two million cases of cholera in Yemen already. And now you have this coronavirus situation on top of that. There have been calls for a ceasefire uh, in, in Yemen, but the Houthis, who are, you know, the one faction that controls the country and is backed by Iran, is saying, no, we will not abide by the ceasefire unless you lift the air and, and sea blockades that have been imposed by the Saudi-led coalition. In Libya, the same thing. The country completely destroyed and fractured, but now in the throes of a civil war. One faction to the east, uh, supported by Egypt and the UAE and Russia, and factions in the west around Tripoli, the capital, supported by Turkey, fighting in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. Sam, it's such a humanitarian catastrophe, and you've brought up so many of the, the different contributing factors to all of this and also the implications. One thing you mentioned I wanted to ask you to explain a little bit more for listeners. You talked about sanctions. Can you clarify if these are Security Council, UN Security Council sanctions or American sanctions? And what does the prospect look like for lifting those sanctions? Because it seems so inhumane to allow them to continue while on top of everything you've mentioned, there's also now the threat of coronavirus spreading. I think it's important to put this in perspective. There are mainly U.S. and European Union and Canadian sanctions, I think, to some extent, on, on the the, the regime itself on figures in the regime, uh, you know, Bashar al-Assad, his family, people in the security forces, also the government ministries and institutions. So these sanctions are on, on the entire regime. That said, I mean, the regime has been able to evade these sanctions for years. And I, I've, I've witnessed that myself in Damascus when I was there in 2000. 12, at the beginning, you know, when all these sanctions were, were implemented, I mean, the regime uh, cronies, these are businessmen who work for the regime and who, are, who include Bashar's own cousin, Rami Makhlouf, who's on, you know, these international sanctions, were definitely able to, uh, you know, set up uh, offshore shell companies uh, and be able to deal with these sanctions and be able to get the regime whatever it needs. Uh, you know, they've, they've taken advantage of, of all sorts of different loopholes and, and vulnerabilities in the system. So the regime has been able to evade these sanctions and get whatever it needs. But obviously, it, it has had an impact on average Syrians. And the regime has continuously come out and said, look, you are in this situation because of these sanctions. And, and Assad, you know, came out and reiterated that earlier this week when he met with an Iranian delegation headed by the foreign minister Zarif. Uh, I mean, it's important to point out that both countries are under sanctions. Mm -hmm. So so I think it's, it, yes, I mean, uh, we're all for relief if it, if it actually, at the end of the day, impacts people and, and, and helps, you know, Syrian people. But for the relief to actually help the regime again to regroup and reassert itself and, you know, reimpose its reign of terror on the people, I think maybe people would have a problem with that. In your book, you talk about this. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about how these leaders 
to some extent could be dispensable, but it's the entrenched regimes and all the competing local and international interests vested in those regimes continuing. And yet Assad persists. I mean, wasn't then President Barack Obama, I think it was 2014, said that he would remove or that Assad should be removed, but he's still going strong, unlike many of the other leaders in uh, the Middle East. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, tell us a bit about your book and like, how is it that Assad continues to remain in power? This is an excellent question. Yes. I mean, this regime has been in place the longest out of all the others in the region. Maybe you could compare it to the one in Libya because Muammar al-Gaddafi came to power through a coup in 1969, one year before Hafez al-Assad, Bashar's father, seized absolute power. In fact, they were best friends. But in the case of Syria, really, I mean, they have been building this system and preparing for a day like this for 50 years. In fact, the whole system is built on facing a challenge, whether from within or from outside. So when the father grabbed power in 1970, he'd already been, you know, the the defense minister. He had been part of a military junta ruling Syria for seven years before that. That's when the Ba'athists came to power in 1963. So he went ahead. I mean, the first step he took was to make this regime coup-proof. That was his priority. And building this cultish dictatorship and really infiltrating every aspect of, of society, down from your classroom in a rural village up to the mosque, to the church, to the businesses and factories in the major cities, the regime and its and its uh, different arms, the Ba'ath Party, the security services, infiltrated all of these institutions, basically embedded itself in society. So that, that's the kind of regime we're talking about. And the regime has been through this before. I mean, in 1977, Syrians rose up in protests. A few people know this. Uh, Students, teachers, uh, professionals took to the streets to protest against a very bad economic situation. The the, uh, Hafez al-Assad had been in place for seven years. He renewed his mandate through a a referendum in which he claimed 99.9% of Syrians supported him. uh, But people were fed up and they rose up. And uh, But what did, what did he do? He went after the peaceful protesters first, exactly like what his son would do in 2011. And at the same time, there was an insurgency uh, led by an Islamist group against the regime. So he took advantage of that to say that, you know, I'm fighting terrorism to basically go after the peaceful protesters first. And I show that in the book, uh, you know, in the, mm-hmm. in the early chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. So the regime had a playbook for, for all of this. And obviously, Hafez al-Assad's efforts culminated in a horrific massacre in the city of Hama in 1982. And at the time, this was in, in, in at the height of the Cold War. The world had, had other priorities. You had the civil war in Lebanon. You had the U.S., in effect, because of the Cold War, in partnership with some of these dictators and authoritarian regimes all over the world because maybe they saw them as useful in confronting the Soviet Union. So the U.S. had all sorts of deals with Hafez al-Assad in Lebanon, even though it opposed him for a number of reasons, but it said very little about the Hama massacre because it viewed it from the prism of what had happened in Iran, the 1971-79 overthrow of the Shah and the advent of the Islamic Republic. And, and the regime in Syria was saying, I'm fighting you know, Islamists here, you know, fanatics. So it was viewed from that 
prism by Western governments, particularly the U.S., so they said very little about the massacre. And then, obviously, the U.S. had other priorities uh, later on, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. This regime adapted itself very quickly, repositioned itself to be um, an ally of America and the West, uh, particularly America. For instance, Hafez al-Assad joined the coalition to oust Saddam Hussein from Kuwait in the early 90s. He presented himself to Bill Clinton as a partner in uh, reaching comprehensive Arab-Israeli peace in the in the region. In fact, there were talks between the Syrian regime and, and, and Israel for years under the, the auspices of the, of the United States. So very smart and adaptable regime that has already faced challenges internally and externally and was able to overcome them. But the one priority of the regime was to perpetuate itself. So Hafez al-Assad was doing all of this at the same time preparing his eldest son to take over from him. And in a way, he, he saw these efforts, you know, b- being seen as a partner, you know, w- with, with the U.S. to stabilize the region as winning him, you know, a breathing, breathing space and room internally at home to be able to lay the grounds for his son to take over. His eldest son dies in a car crash. The second son is brought back from London and groomed to take over power. He's presented first to Syrians and then the world as, you know, the young reformer, very much uh, similar to what the Saudis did with Mohammed bin Salman. Obviously, it's a it's a different set of circumstances in Saudi Arabia. But I'm saying the, the idea that, you know, the son, the heir to, to the leader being groomed uh, and presented to his people in the world as as the reformer. It was very much a, a similar dynamic in Syria. At first, he was embraced by the world, and he had a beautiful wife, a British educated. Let uh, me just jump in, yeah. just to tell listeners in case they, um, uh, you're talking about Bashir Assad now. The, Bashar the, Assad, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yeah, he okay, t- yeah, yeah, because he takes over in 2000. Yeah. The father dies That's in right. 2000. That's right. He takes over. He in- effectively inherits power, and he was celebrated by uh, the international community. Exactly, and also by his own people because they were they were thinking, oh. This, is, this guy is not going to be anything like his father. He studied in, in London. Uh, look at his wife. She's uh, of Syrian origin, but born and, and lived in, in Britain all her life. Things are, things are going to start to change. And in fact, they started to change. I mean, there was an easing. And even he spoke of, of a lot of changes that need to happen. But his idea for change was more economic liberalization. And he made it very clear to them early on. I mean, there was a period of opening known as the Damascus Spring that no way there was going to be any political opening or any political loosening, and that it was mainly going to be the economy, but the economy according to his own terms, according to his own vision, not even according to what people want. And that's effectively what happened. He opened up the economy, but it was mainly controlled by by him, his cousin. They set up this cartel and chosen families from the elite in all the major city to be their partners. So even the economic liberalization was designed in a way to benefit the regime and its cronies first and foremost, and then, uh, and then maybe to trickle down to the rest of the, the population. But then obviously you had all these other crises around him. I mean, in Iraq, the U.S. invaded and toppled Saddam. And then for a while, Bashar had been a partner of, of the U.S. in the fight against uh, in the so-called fight against terrorism, because he thought that uh, one way to shield himself, I mean, again, this is exactly the exact playbook of his father, you know, going to the West and saying, I can help you with this problem. After 9-11, he, he wrote a letter to George Bush at the time saying, I can help you. He shared intelligence 
on, on al-Qaeda uh, because al-Qaeda had a lot of Syrians in its ranks. So obviously the regime had a lot of intelligence on these people and, and, and it shared it with America. It also tortured a lot of these suspects on behalf of the CIA, including a Canadian citizen. Oh, Maher Rar, that's right. And a lot of this uh, came out in the U.S. Senate Select uh, Intelligence Committee report that was released even in redacted form in 2014. But it's horrific reading, really. And your yeah. book um, sets this out magnificently. Like, it's almost unbelievable how the Assad family was so systematic and used such foresight in fortifying uh, their position and when you think of an investigated account of what has happened, you know, for lack of a better word, um, horrifying. So the U.S. invades Iraq. Um, his calculus changes. He thinks he's going to be next. And in fact, uh, if you remember, the former defense secretary, Rumsfeld, uh, threatened him, said, you, you know, you will be next unless you cooperate with us in stabilizing Iraq. So he begins to support the insurgency in Iraq in all its forms, you know, the so-called nationalist insurgency that uh, made up mainly of, of former Saddam era officials and the Islamist uh, insurgency that emerged, mainly the, the Al-Qaeda in, in Iraq, to the point where a lot of the, the would-be jihadists and suicide bombers would arrive at the airport in Damascus, would be picked up by his intelligence services, taken to the border uh, with Iraq and told, you know, there's the way to Iraq. And his intelligence services oversaw the training camps for, you know, al-Qaeda in Iraq on the border it, inside Syria. He also hosted a lot of insurgent leaders who were cooperating with al-Qaeda in Iraq inside uh, uh, Syria. Uh, so, I mean, that's the, the type of involvement that we're talking about. And the U.S. knew all of this. And then when the U.S. wanted to leave Iraq, wanted to, in the lead up to uh Obama's election that you know became that, that was his campaign promise you know we we're going to leave Iraq and then you had that recommendation from the um, from the bi bipartisan uh, you know Iraq study group saying that if you want to stabilize Iraq you have to talk to Bashar al-Assad and the Iranians and which they did and in fact uh, as I show in the book they effectively reached a deal with Bashar al-Assad saying you know if you stop supporting the insurgents if you stop sending the suicide bombers to Iraq we will lift sanctions on your regime. We'll, we will begin to re-engage with you. The U.S. reinstated the ambassador in Damascus after it had pulled the ambassador because of the assassination of the Lebanese Prime Minister Hariri, uh, of which it accused uh, you know, Assad of playing a, a role. So things were, in fact, looking good for the regime. And I mean, as you see in the book, it, it had reached similar bargains and deals with uh, host of countries. It wasn't only America. They reached similar deals with France, with, with Turkey, of all places. I mean, now you, you, you see Turkey as being, you know, uh, 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 on the opposite side. But back then, I mean, for, for almost six years, I mean, they were like the best of allies. He, they also reached this, uh, deals with wealthy Gulf Arab states, which was very important for Bashar, like the Qataris invested like something like $5 billion or something in Syria before the, uh, the uprising. And then and then, then everything changed with the uprising. But the, uh, in 2011, when Syrians were seeing what was happening elsewhere and said, well, we're, you know, we want the same thing. We have been muzzled by this regime, crushed by this regime, oppressed by the re this regime for 40 years. I mean, 40 years in 2010. And mm -hmm. now is, is our opportunity to come out and speak, to find our voices, to find ourselves, to find our identity. And really, that, that was the, the driving force. And of course, the regime was prepared because 
it had already this, this what I call a manual in the drawer, the same manual that Hafez al-Assad uh, you know, had used in, to, in the 70s and, and 80s. They just pulled it out of the drawer and applied it, you know, crush the peaceful protests first, and then say everybody's a terrorist, and then make this into a fight against terrorism. But obviously, the stakes were very different now, uh, you know, under, under the sun. This was much bigger. The challenge was much bigger. It was almost the entire country. And then you had all these outside players. And then you had social media and the internet. That wasn't a factor under the father. Right. You're setting out the actions and wrongful actions of states and also the way that rights continue to be regressed, even the rights to peaceful protest, but also, you know, humanitarian commitments to to refugees and the laws of war. All of these are at stake. It's important for people to to hear exactly the sorts of things that you've been telling us about how different heads of state or different governments have been on different sides of these issues, all of which contributes to the suffering of the people in the region, which I think is so concerning and is only exacerbated now by the coronavirus threat. In the midst of all of this, there's one light of hope, I would say, and that is the um, German prosecution of uh, Syrian officials that just started this past week. I'm speaking to you today on April 24th, 2020, and this uh, German prosecution that has just started against uh, Syrian officials for torture via the principle of universal jurisdiction. And I know that you uh, know a lot about this, Sam. So can you tell our listeners what's happening there? Sure. This, in fact, uh, the trial opened yesterday, April 23rd, in the High Regional Court in the city of Koblenz. It's in the mid-Rhine region in Germany. And obviously they were observing all the, you know, the social distancing and the requirements of, of, of dealing with the coronavirus. So they had much fewer people in the courthouse. But this was an incredible and historic moment for a lot of Syrians, including one of the main characters of my book, Mazen Darwish. He's a human rights lawyer, uh, he's an activist. He's been working on gaining rights within the regime structure. I mean, we're not talking, this is, this is not someone who started off as, as wanting to topple the regime or, or topple Bashar al-Assad. I mean, he started uh, in 2000. He's a, he's a lawyer, basically taking part in these, in these talks in the living rooms of Damascus about the possibility for uh, certain reforms, uh, certain openings within the system itself. So this is not someone, not some revolutionary who wanted to topple the system. But even that was denied to him and many others by the regime starting in 2000. He's also a, a journalist. He had his own news website very early on in, in 2000. Even that, the regime shut down. At one point, they shut down his office in the mid-2000s. And then the Arab Spring begins, and Mazen and many other activists who had been influenced by what had what had already started in places like Iran, if you remember, in 2008, when people I rose do. up against uh, what they considered fraudulent election results. I and remember following them on Twitter. Actually. Exactly. Yeah. So, so mm -hmm. Mazen and his colleagues thought there's something incredible here. You know, opposing these types of regimes is possible, and it doesn't have to happen the traditional way you know, like the classic uh, opposition parties or figures, but we could do it from 
from the ground up, you know, mm -hmm. it could be grassroots, it could be, you know, via Twitter, via social media. So they started looking at this phenomenon in 2008, I mean, him and his colleagues. And then 2010 happens, Tunisia, and then the protests begin spreading everywhere. And initially, you know, Mazen and all his colleagues were just calling for reforms. Again, just the same thing they were calling for in 2000. You know, give us give us some, some breathing room here. Allow us to think, uh, to write independently. I mean, just to have our own voice. I mean, that's all they were asking for. And, and also to have some room for political activity, uh, again, under the umbrella of the regime in, in one way or another. So they were talking about reforms to the system. In fact, he had meetings with top regime officials early on at the start of the protest to talk about exactly that, like what could be done within the system. But even that was too much for the regime because they felt like the moment they would uh, give an inch, they would have to give... <laughs> <laughs> everything. So even that they were not willing to grant to people. And eventually Mazen ended up in, in prison, like many Syrians. His office was raided in February 2012. He moved from one, what I would call torture dungeon to another, because Gosh. you can't even call them prisons uh, mm. that were that either belonged to the, the different security services, because in Syria you have the system in place uh, of four main security agencies that have branches all over the country watching almost every citizen and watching each other. I mean, this is what I, I go back to what I said about the regime having constructed a system that was coup-proof. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the secret police was one of the main pillars of this regime, a secret police that really embedded itself within society in every aspect of society. So he was, he was imprisoned in these dungeons that were overseen by these uh, security services, secret police, and tortured there and, and remained there for three and a half years. He was lucky to survive. Many others were died in, the, in these dungeons. So he remained in prison effectively for three and a half years. He was let out after a lot of pressure by, by all sorts of uh, people, including the United Nations. And he fled Syria in uh, the fall of 2015, came to Germany first. Obviously, this is someone who has been traumatized by the experience that he survived. But the first thing he was thinking about, I mean, I began to interview him one year after he had left Syria. And I began my interviews in Germany, in Berlin, in his apartment. And the first thing he was talking about was the need for justice, not revenge. He said, this is not about me and what they did to me, because I consider myself lucky compared to other Syrians who perished in these dungeons. So he, beautiful. Yeah, he began what, like almost a, a, a chrysotic, uh, you know, crusade for justice, because all the doors were shut. There was no way Syria was going to be referred to the International Criminal Court, uh, because first of all, Syria is not a signatory. And second of all, and more importantly, it was being protected by Russia and the Security Council, because mm -hmm. one other way for referral would be through the Security Council, right. and that wasn't going to happen. So all the doors were shut, even in his meetings with uh, with officials like Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, other European officials, UN uh, Syria envoy at the time, Di Mistura, they were telling him, effectively, you have to choose between peace and reconciliation or justice. It can't be the two of them. I mean, that was the message he was getting from, from pretty much most of the Western officials he was meeting. In other words, move on. Move exactly. On. Yeah. And, and a lot of these countries, if you have to, I mean, if, if, if you recall, at the time, 2016, they were, Europe was grappling with this refugee crisis, mm -hmm. with 
uh, ISIS attacks on uh, European soil. So that was their priority. How do we how do we end this? And if the price is that this regime remains in place, then you know we're going to have to bite the bullet and make that choice. And pretty much, you could say all countries made that choice or made that bargain, even though they still have these sanctions in place against the regime, even though they haven't reopened their embassies, many things. And some of them have actually started secretly cooperate with the regime on intelligence sharing because they felt maybe the regime was useful in the fight against ISIS, particularly countries like Italy or some of the Nordic countries. We're going to have to have you back to talk more about that, but please continue on this. Please continue on this. Yes. So I'll take it forward to the to the trials. Uh, that's what we're talking about. I mean, Mazen and other lawyers and other colleagues. Uh, there's another Syrian lawyer who was involved in this case, uh, mm-hmm. Anwar al-Bunni, uh, working for years with the help of allies in Germany, not the government. I mean, these are like uh, legal organizations and, and rights groups like Amnesty International who were supporting them. It wasn't the government supporting these efforts. And year after year, you know, preparing these cases, because as you had mentioned, Germany had passed a code in 2002 that allowed for crimes against international law under the principle of universal jurisdiction. So they wanted to take advantage of that and build these cases. You know, they worked very hard year after year. There was a small opening because Mazen and many others refer to these legal victories as small openings in this total and absolute wall of impunity. Because as I described, I mean, all the avenues to justice were pretty much shut. And this was a hole in the wall of impunity, basically, that they were trying to carve. And in 2018, there was a warrant in Germany issued for one of the head of the main uh, security uh, services. But obviously, there was no way to implement it. The guy was in Syria under the protection of Russia. And then they built these cases against two former security services officers, a colonel and his aide. These are people who had left Syria, left the regime and came to Germany. And they were able to build these cases against them. The, the, the two were indicted. Sam, and- can you just back up for a second? Isn't it a fact that these two had entered Syria as refugees, but were actually identified by other Syrian refugees. Is that is that correct? Oh, you mean entered Germany? Yes, correct, yes. As, as refugees, correct. And, and, yeah. and they came to the attention of the state through other Syrian refugees. Right, yes. right. And their cases, I mean, the case, the trial that opened yesterday mm-hmm. uh, concerns the period from April 2011. So you're talking about the beginning of the protest, basically, until September. 2012, which is a period I devote a lot of attention to in the book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the peaceful phase of the revolution. So it, it concerns the, the alleged crimes uh, or suspected crimes that these two committed in one branch of the security services in Damascus, involving about 4,000 cases, individuals, and uh, the crimes range from uh, murder and rape to, to torture and, and other crimes, you know, against humanity. And for Syrians like Mazen Darwish and others, this is a victory. This is a huge victory because, again, this is a hole in the wall of that total impunity. And I think they see it as a first step to perhaps holding Bashar al-Assad himself accountable and putting him on trial one day. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is so huge and it's important because we both know There are so many critics of the use of the ICC, which doesn't apply here, but also 
international criminal law. Like I've heard people complain, and with some merit, that it's often used in a very selective way in which it's usually countries from the global north uh, going after countries in the global south. But I think you and I are sort of on the same page about this in the sense that this has nothing to do with that. This has to do with uh, accountability and impunity. And it's something that has come directly from the Syrian people who want to see justice, as as you said, and as, as you quote uh, Mazen Dawish as saying. And I think it's actually historic. We had a case here in Canada. It's a different situation. It was a civil action brought by uh, the son of a Canadian-Iranian journalist, Zara Kazemi, who was, as you probably know, was tortured and killed in Evan sure. Prison in Iran. And the, the difference there is it wasn't a prosecution by the state. It was a civil action brought by uh, Ms. Kazemi's estate and her son. That uh, action was denied in the Supreme Court of Canada on the basis of being barred by the State Immunity Act. To me, it's still a, um, a case that haunts me. And I think, you know, I really commend Germany for passing this legislation and for picking up that very controversial baton, especially when, as you pointed out, Angela Merkel and her government was heavily criticized by many people in Europe for having admitted so many refugees, um, in other words, for fulfilling uh, humanitarian commitments to people in need. So to do this, I think, is is so historic, and I'm so... I can't yeah, even begin absolutely. to think, you yeah, know, what... Yeah, I mean, I, I totally yeah. agree with you. I mean, we, yeah. we must commend Germany because it has the legal infrastructure in place. But I, I can't stress enough that, you know, it's not the German government that's pursuing this. Exactly. It came from the people. The system yes. does allow yeah. it. And, and, yes. And, and, and Germany does deserve credit for having this system and infrastructure in place by virtue of the code that they passed in 2002. But again, we need to remember, this is brought by the Syrians themselves and their exactly. allies. Yes. Because, again, I, I mean, maybe a, a comparison to the Iranian case uh, that you just brought up would be a case in France involving a Franco-Syrian uh, citizen and his son. This is, this is someone who headed the, uh, he was a principal of, of the French school in Damascus, and his son, maybe his son wrote something on Facebook, maybe his son attended a protest, maybe they were secretly against the regime, but these were people who never picked up arms against the regime. This is, like, you're talking about a you know, a school principal and his son, who was a student at the same school, picked up by the regime and tortured to death. And a case was brought. And here you, you would think that France does have a, an interest because, you know, these are dual citizens. But that case has made very little progress in France compared to what we've seen in Germany yesterday. Well, there's, there's many cases that we can talk about. And I couldn't agree with you more. We commend Germany, but we have to remember that this case is only going forward because of the tireless efforts and the courageous efforts of, of people like Mazen Dawish and others, the Syrian people and their allies. And, and you mentioned Maher Arar, and I just want to say that in the parallel there is that his case, I mean, he may have languished, you know, in, in a Syrian prison, but for the relentless efforts of his wife, Monia Mazig, in Canada and her networking and the the assistance of Amnesty International here and others that made things move there. So... Sam, thank you for your time. You've given us so much to think about. Is there hope 
What do you want to see in order to improve the situation for people in uh, Syria or of Syrian origin? I mean, yesterday gives me tremendous hope. I mean, this is something I've been talking about um, since since the book came out. I mean, in, at every opportunity, at every talk I've participated in, you know, since the book was the hardcover was published in May 2019. Uh, a, a, Almost everyone has asked me the same question you've asked, is there hope? And my answer was yes at the time. You know, every time I would say yes, because you have Syrians who are committed to justice and accountability, to holding this regime accountable. And we saw that on display yesterday. So that gives me hope. But these Syrians can't do it on their own. I mean, they need support. They need support. And the second thing that gives me hope is, you know, even though the world thinks the regime has won, and I, I don't think and we can... I can sit here for another two hours to tell you why the regime hasn't won and why the moment that the Iranians and the, and the Russians pull out the support, this regime will crumble. Even though people think he has won, he has actually lost because Syrians have been completely transformed by what, what has happened to them over the past decade. They're, not, they're no longer the same. You have even the ones who live under you know, regime control, but deep inside oppose the regime, but maybe... At, at this moment, do not dare express that because the regime, with the help of its backers, Russia and Iran, was able to reassert itself, even those are not the same. And of course, the ones living outside Syria, uh, I'm talking about 7 million, at least 7 million Syrians. Think about it. One third of the population who will not go back, many of them will not go back unless this regime is removed or changed uh, somehow. Sam, where can people find you? And I know you're headed back to the Middle East. Please be safe and stay healthy. And how can, uh, where and how can people find you to follow you in your work? Well, I'm on Twitter and I'm, uh, it's at Sam uh, Dagger. I'm on Facebook, same thing, Sam Dagger. I have a website, samdaggerjournalist.com. They can follow my work and uh, the book and, and watch some of the events that I've participated in for the book. And thank you for your support and interest in this. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for making time. And we're going to post links as well. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you to all of us who got back to me after last week's episode with comments. I'd like to take this moment to thank the University of Windsor Faculty of Law for a grant that enabled me to hire four wonderful law students in the month of May. Gideon Mpofo, Robin Goldberg, Chris Henniger, and Maya Kolpakar, who provided lots of valuable input into getting this podcast launched and then some. Friends, if you like what you've just heard, please subscribe, hit like, tell your friends, and write to me. And join us next Thursday for another episode of Just Planet, Laws, Life, and Global Crises. Blessings and good wishes to you all.